The following message entitled, God's Children Aren't Immune to Snake Bites, of the series O Church Arise, was given by Bob Mundorf on the 12th of June, 2016. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Welcome to Saving Grace Church. If I haven't met you, my name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see everyone. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're continuing this week in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're working our way through uh, each chapter in 1 Corinthians, and we've come to chapter 10. Now I think I use rattlesnakes in sermons more than anyone possibly in the world. It seems like I have a rattlesnake illustration all the time, but that's because I like rattlesnakes. And a lot of times they fit and, and illustrate something in the Scripture. So it just comes to mind. And I don't know if all of you know, I've been around rattlesnakes pretty much all my life. When I was a kid, uh, my family was involved in those crazy rattlesnake roundup snake sacking contests. And I brought a picture. If we can show that first um, picture of what these things are. I don't know if you can see it really well, but this is... I'm probably somewhere in that crowd as a little kid, and these guys are uh, grabbing rattlesnakes in a pen, and they're having a contest to see how many they can get in a, like a pillowcase at one time. So a little, I don't know, I'm not recommending that, but anyways, I remember as a kid, one of my jobs as my, as my dad and my grandpap and my uncles would collect these rattlesnakes for these contests, and we had like 60 or 70 of them in a a pen out in the, the yard where I live now, I would throw a, a chipmunk into the cage once in a while to feed them. So I fed the rattlesnakes. Amen. Yeah, amen, Tim. See, I had faith. I had all kinds of faith for snake handling. And, but I was around them, and as I got older, I enjoyed just... I really like the most rugged, remote parts of the forest around here that I can find. I like the mountains, and that's where a lot of rattlesnakes live. So... Uh, just like taking pictures of them, like visiting with them at their snake dens, finding snake dens. Um, and so, you know, I've been around them a lot. I've handled them a lot. Uh, my wife doesn't like me to pick them up anymore. But um, I, you know, I found that if you, this is like this, I think, with most animals. If you're stressed out, if you're really afraid, it's like they can sense fear. And if you're not stressed and you're just pretty confident you can usually walk up to them and just pick them up by the tail and hold them and they won't strike at you. And um, I've done it a lot of times, but there was a time when that confidence, that confidence might have gone to my head because there are always exceptions, aren't there? There are always exceptions. And I have another clip here, of, uh, or another photo of this, this small female rattler right here was the only one that ever struck at me. I happened to get a picture of me holding her. I picked her up. It was fine. Just she didn't, didn't try to strike at me or anything. But the moment I let her down, she coiled up really fast before I could even get away and struck and got me in the boot. Um, fortunately, it didn't go through the boot, it, but her fang caught on. And so I gave it a kick and she struck again really fast and almost got me in the thigh. And so I got out of there. Well, why do I... Good idea, I know. Why do I bring this up? Well, it's an illustration that I think fits the meaning of our passage today. Here's the point. I've had the privilege of growing up around snakes. I love snakes. I've handled them a lot. But over time, you can get too confident. And in our passage today, we're going to see that God is warning us. This is a, a warning kind of message that as Christians... As Christians, we know that we have spiritual position. We have spiritual privileges. We've seen God work a number of times in our lives. Many of us have had great experiences in the past with God, but we can become overconfident. And the key passage in our, our the key verse in our passage as a whole this morning is 1 Corinthians 10, 12, which says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. See, as Christians, if, if you remember throughout the last several weeks, 
Paul's been talking to the, quote, strong Christians in the church at Corinth. These are the Christians who, they weren't threatened by things that other Christians maybe were afraid to do. They didn't, they didn't have a second thought about eating meat offered to idols, while some Christians in the church didn't want to do that because it could be dangerous. These Christians were strong because they understood, they understood grace. They understood that there really wasn't a God in that meat. They could eat it. It was okay. God gave us food to eat. So they were strong in a sense. They had more understanding. And this is a message for those of us who might not feel as threatened by the things in the world, might not feel as threatened by getting close to sin, because when we think we stand, we need to be careful. That is the time that we could fall. So the title of the message this morning is God's children aren't immune to snake bites. And we're actually going to see some serpents, some snakes from the Old Testament, as one of the examples in this message. So let's start out by looking at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, we're going to start reading about Paul referencing the nation of Israel in the Old Testament here in 1 through 4. And if there was ever a people that could maybe presume upon their privilege and their position, it was Israel. Because they they have had a lot of experiences with God, and they were God's chosen people. They were the people that God chose out of all the other people in the world. And this passage is a reminder to us that we can't take our position for granted. 1 Corinthians 10.1 For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud, in in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that's the big idea here. These these people, God's people, Israel... They had been through so much with God. He was with them. They saw him do wonderful things in their lives. And yet with most of them, even in spite of their privilege, in spite of their position, he was not pleased. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, is God pleased with us? That's one of the reasons Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth. He wants the church to know that God wasn't pleased with them, and he wants, he wants the Corinthians to live a life that God is pleased with. So does being God's chosen people automatically guarantee that all of us are going to live a life pleasing to God? And the point is here, it doesn't. It doesn't guarantee that. As a matter of fact, when you look at this passage carefully and you contrast verses 1 through 4 with verse 5, you see that really clearly. Let's do that. Verses 1 through 4. Now, look at how many times we see the word all. And think about what this means as contrasted with verse 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, and in the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So we see here verse 1, all. Verse 2, all. Verse 3, all. Verse 4, all. And then we come to this big contrast in verse 5 where he says, nevertheless, with most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. See, all of God's people in the Old Testament saw the wonderful things that he did. They all had that connection with him, and therefore they all had an equal opportunity. They all had an equal opportunity to obey him. They all had an equal opportunity to believe his promises and to walk in them and to get through the wilderness and to enter that promised land. But it says, nevertheless, with 
with most of them, God was not pleased. See, there are always spiritual parallels from the Old Testament to us in the New. And that's one of the things that we want to look for as we study the Old Testament. And as Paul brings these Old Testament examples up to us, we have to kind of make that spiritual connection. And one of the spiritual connections here is, see, they had God with them, guiding them. He was with them. But we have it so much better. Because God is not only with us, but He is in us, in the Holy Spirit. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've been regenerated. That means God, the Holy Spirit, has come to live in us, to take up residence in us. In the Old Testament, He lived in the temple. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And therefore, we have greater privilege and greater position than Israel had in the Old Testament. So he's with them, and we see that as we look at these verses. Look at them again. Verse 1. We see that they had the cloud guiding them. Now, I wish we had time to go through all of these and look at the Old Testament reference, but I'm just going to paraphrase some of it for you and explain what he's referring to. The cloud, many of you probably will remember that God was with them in the form of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night guiding them. He was, he was there guiding Israel as a cloud, physically. But we are guided spiritually because we have the Spirit of God in us. So he was with them externally, he's in us internally. Verse 2, Paul references Moses, their faithful leader. Moses is the, the leader who led them out of Egypt. Remember, they were in slavery in Egypt, bound captive and Moses God appointed Moses to lead them out of Egypt so Moses was a great leader it says in the verse they were baptized into Moses and all that means don't get confused with baptized that just means that they were identified with Moses as he was their leader when we get baptized uh, into water it's a, a part of the meaning of that is that we are now identified with Christ they were baptized into Moses they were identified with him and he was a pretty good leader. But we have the real thing. Moses was a picture, a physical picture, a type or a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is our leader spiritually. He's God, Jesus Christ, and he leads us. We've been baptized into him. And he not only led us out of Egypt, which represents our captivity to sin, but he purchased our freedom with his own blood. So he's a better leader than Moses. Moses was just a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. Verse 3, we see that they had spiritual food. The spiritual food was the manna. Remember the manna that was given to them? This white bread-like stuff that fell on the ground. And they had this word manna, which means what is it? Manna is what it was called. What is it? Now, manna was, it says a spiritual food. Manna was a spiritual food. Manna was really cool. If you go back and read it, they were only allowed to collect so much for the day. Remember? And, and what happened if they collected more? Like if somebody was worried about not having enough tomorrow, so he gathered enough for tomorrow. You remember what happened? It got, yeah, it rotted. It got worms in it. It, it went bad. It began to stink. And so I think God made it like that so that they would depend on him day by day to provide for them. But it's cool because on the Sabbath day, where they weren't allowed to go pick it up, they could collect on the day before the Sabbath day, they could collect two days worth and it, and it lasted. That didn't happen. So it was a spiritual food. We're told that angels eat this food. I, it's really neat that angels even eat, but that this is angels food it's called. So what does this manna represent spiritually for us? This is God's grace. God gives us mercy and grace new every day, the Bible tells us. Every single day, He provides for us enabling grace to do everything that He's called you to do that day. And if you messed up yesterday, every day He provides new mercy, the Bible tells us. And so, we have a spiritual food that's so much greater than manna. 
Verse 4, we see that they all drank from the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. See, this is wonderful. Jesus Christ, there's so many examples in the Old Testament. He didn't begin the day he was born, that we celebrate Christmas, his birth. He didn't begin the day he was born as a human. Jesus Christ is the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. And he appeared many times in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us nobody's ever seen the Father. So that pillar of smoke that was God, that pillar of fire, that burning bush, this rock that, they, that provided spiritual drink, if nobody's seen the Father, that was Christ. That was God the Son. That was Jesus Christ before he became a man. And it says that he provided them water. Today, he does the same thing, but in a much better way. You might be in a dry place. They were in the wilderness. You might be in a spiritually dry place in your life. You might be thinking, I just don't, I don't feel the same way spiritually that I used to. Jesus never left you. He's still there. He's still the rock that provides spiritual refreshment for us. He never left you. He's always there. And we can go back to him and drink deeply every day from that spiritual water. So there's no excuse for any of us to be spiritually dehydrated. Because Jesus is always there for us. Old Testament, a lot of physical pictures. But they're physical pictures of spiritual realities for us today. After learning that, I just love reading the Old Testament because it's kind of like a puzzle and you, you've got to figure it out. And I love drawing those spiritual connections and that's what Paul's doing here for the Corinthians. That's why he's referring the, them to these Old Testament stories. But why is he doing that for them? Think about this. We are under the new covenant. We have it better. But why is he using all of these Old Testament pictures of, of Israel as an example? I think we're going to see that as we continue in this message. Look at verse 5 again. I want to point out one more thing out. Verse 5, nevertheless. Now what's nevertheless mean there? Think about he's tying it to all these positions and privileges and experience that Israel had. Nevertheless, even though they were, they were God's chosen people, even though they had the highest spiritual privileges, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This most of them, this has to be, I mean, it's true, but it's got to be one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. Think about this with me. How many people, how many Israelites, approximately, does the Bible tell us God delivered out of Egypt? Hmm? More than a million. Two million, right? It was about two million. There were more than a million, probably closer to two. How many of them, so, so there's these two million Israelites going through the desert. How many of them made it into the promised land? Two. Two. It says, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That would be, let me see, uh, 1,999,998, right? Died in the wilderness and didn't make it into the promised land. That's most. That is most of them. So Joshua and Caleb, right? Right, Tim? Okay. Joshua and Caleb made it into the wilderness. So, wow, there's a point that he's trying to prove here. And I think he's trying to prove this to New Testament Christians. It's not a guarantee that every single one of us, as a New Testament believer, is going to live a life pleasing to God and live happily ever after. Because that's his warning. That's his warning that we're going to see. We've got to make sure that we live a life pleasing to God. It's, this ties with what Mark taught last week. Mark ended last week with the end of chapter 9 where Paul's saying, I'm disciplining myself because I don't want to be disqualified. Now, by being disqualified, Paul isn't saying, I don't want to lose my salvation and go to hell. 
because he knows and has taught so much that when someone believes in Jesus Christ, they have eternal life, everlasting life. They're secure. By disqualified, he meant, I don't want to get benched in this Christian life where I can't bear any fruit anymore and where my life is just wasted. And that's the warning here. He's saying, he's continuing that line of thinking and he's saying, we need to make an effort by the grace God has given us to live a life pleasing to God. See, most of these Israelites never changed and they died in that state in the, in the wilderness. But we don't have to be like them. When I let that rattlesnake down, I was banking on the dozens of times I've confidently let other rattlesnakes down. And I never thought for a minute that it was going to strike at me. And it turned and it struck at me. I was presuming on my experiences. That's the point. God doesn't want us to do that. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This could be for us, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm saved by God's grace. I'm under grace. I'm a Christian. I'm totally saved. Uh, I've been a Christian for 10 years. God and I, we've been through a lot. I'm going to be fine. That's not the attitude we need to have. We can get bitten because there are temptations and trials around every corner and we need to be constantly trusting in God. Look at verses 6 through 12. In this last section, we're going to see four examples of Israel's failures. Four examples of Israel's failures. And um, these, are, these are like the highlight reel of Israel. You know those fail videos that show people just failing moment after moment? This is, this is like Israel's highlight reel. It says in verse uh, 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. See, we as Christians can desire evil as they did. He doesn't want us to do that. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know that saying, uh, I don't know where it came from, probably a movie, but it's, you, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You decide. That's kind of what God is saying here. He wants this to go down the easy way. He wants us to hear this instruction, see these examples, and say, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. But the hard way is a very real option for those who don't take heed and think that we've got this, we're going to be okay. So in this passage that I just read, we see four deadly sins that can strike primarily, I think, at confident Christians. Four deadly sins that can strike at confident Christians. Now, how many species of venomous snakes do we have in Pennsylvania? Anybody know? Three, right. What are they? Rat, the timber rattler? No water moccasin here. Copperhead? What's the third? No diamondback. I'll be impressed if you get this. Massasauga, right. It's a type of rattlesnake. Yeah, I think it's around Meadville area, up Crawford County. Yeah, so three of them. And any one of those snakes, if they bite you, the consequences can be deadly. It's going to be bad. You're going to get really sick. You're going to get really dehydrated. You can lose a limb. You can get paralyzed. You can have central nervous system problems, neurological problems, or you could die. Now, there are a lot of consequences that happen with sin. Sin consequences can be way more deadly than getting bit by any one of those snakes. I mean, we just read that 23,000 people died in one day for sin. 
And God's giving us these things as examples. So let's take them seriously. Look at the first one again. Verse 6, this one is desiring evil. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The, the word for desire evil, it, it's like an intense craving for something that you're not allowed to have. Um, another similar Bible word would be coveting. The talk, Bible talks a lot about coveting. That's like really, really wanting something that you're not allowed to have over the point of obsessing on that thing. Now, this is interesting. When we look at what this is referring to back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, you might be surprised. Uh, if we could project Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, see if you can identify the, the evil that they wanted. It says, Now the, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. That's what we're talking about. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except manna before our eyes. Manna. They were like manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna gumbo, manna cacciatore, baked manna, boiled manna, toasted manna, manna. Just too much manna. And they were getting tired of it. And they wanted these... What did they want? What, what was the evil? Food, yeah. Is uh, fish... And cucumbers and melons, are those things evil? So this is new, like the new Biblio diet here. We can't have this stuff. It's bad for you. No. It's not that those things were evil. But it is saying they wanted evil things, right? So why is it making the connection there? Why, why is wanting those things evil? That food that they had in Egypt. Because they, they weren't content with what God was giving them. God was giving them spiritual food. He was giving them manna. And the whole time they're thinking, I remember how it used to be. Have you ever thought that? Like as a Christian, we can think that. We can think about things that maybe we indulged in before we were Christians, before we were following Jesus. And we can kind of be discontent with the lot in life that God's given us. And that's the parallel for us today. We're allowed to eat anything, the Bible tells us. Peter saw the vision, we can eat whatever. Matter of fact, uh, those of you in my fellowship group probably remember when I went and killed a rattlesnake and grilled it up for us one, at one of our picnics. We ate a rattlesnake. It's okay. We weren't afraid to eat that. But... When we're not content, when we crave something, even if it really isn't evil, it might not be evil, like this stuff. You might, maybe God hasn't provided the means for you to own a brand new car, but you are just so desiring and craving and obsessing over that, or a bigger house. Or maybe it's a relationship that you're in, but you think about another person. And God's given you one already, a spouse. Who knows? It could be anything. It could be anything, but this evil, the evil here is the intense craving, the coveting. And in Psalm 103, it makes a reference to this, what we're talking about here when Israel wanted this food. And this is eye-opening. Psalm 103 tells us that God gave them what they wanted. He gave it to them. And it wasn't good. It tells us in Psalm 103.14, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. Now, lusted, it doesn't, we, it always, we think of it as a sexual thing, but it's the same thing as this evil desire. You can lust after food, you can lust after cookies, whatever. It's, they lusted, they had an intense craving exceedingly in the wilderness, and God tested, and tested God in the desert, and He gave them their request. God might give you your request. But with it, he sent leanness into their soul. So what does that mean? What is leanness 
that, that entered their soul. Well, they were spiritually lean. They became spiritually weak. They dried up spiritually. And you could probably think in your life, if there was something that you were craving after and you ended up getting it, that thing might have stolen like your spiritual desire and just caused you to dry up. If you haven't experienced that, be careful. This is one of the reasons we're not supposed to covet because it can become, as we're going to see next, an idol to us, something that comes between us and God. Now, again, we're talking here about things that God doesn't want us to have. So, like Israel, God may answer our lustful cravings, but if he, if he does, beware, it, it will suck the spiritual life out of you. Number two, the second snake bite to beware of for strong Christians to watch out for is idolatry. <clears throat> Look at verse 7. <clears throat> verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, Paul's referring here to Exodus 32 where Israel was waiting for Moses to come off of the mountain when he was meeting with God. And they were waiting, and they were waiting, and they were waiting, and they became impatient. And they were so used to having God lead them that they didn't know what to do. So they made a God for themselves, a false God, and they made this golden calf, you might remember. <clears throat> they decided that uh, that would be a good idea, then they would have this God there that could lead them and guide them. That was an idol. And idolatry for us, spiritually, we might not make a golden calf. We might not have a totem pole in our yard that we bow down to. But it's anything that, that takes the place of God. Anything that gets between you and God. Anything, okay, you might be thinking, if you're honest, you might think, uh, years ago, I was really on fire for the Lord. I was really uh, passionate about Jesus. And, I, I'm not so much anymore. Well, okay, you have to stop and think, what is it? What is it that came between me and God in that time period? What is it that has my affection now? What is it that I'm giving my attention to now when, that's stopping me from doing the things I did before? Like, maybe I got up and I just prayed a lot more and I listened to Christian music and I read Scripture and I was always acknowledging the Lord throughout the day kind of having a conversation in my mind with him, and I don't do that anymore. Why? What am I thinking about? What am, I th am I thinking about my job? Am I thinking about uh, another person? Am I thinking about my hobby? Am I thinking about some sinful thought that I shouldn't be having? What is that? That's an idol for us because it came between us and God. That's an idol. That's a golden calf that we're following instead of following the Lord. Anything that comes between you and God, that thing is your personal idol. And we have to destroy those. We have to eliminate those idols or they will eliminate us. And we see what happened here to Israel. And remember, this is an example for us. Um, a lot of times, if, if we go to verse 8, a lot of times in Scripture, idolatry is, refer, is uh, tied and linked with sexual immorality. Really most times if you study it in Scripture. There's some sexual immorality going on. And I think that's because sexual immorality is a huge idol, I think, for a lot of people today. Verse 8 says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now we read this and we think 23,000 died. These are people. These are people. I mean, it was huge when the World Trade Centers were bombed. And uh, how many was it? 3,000 or maybe more? I should know. That was huge. 23,000 people died in a single day as a consequence for their sin. Now, this is linked with idolatry, I think, because really, if you think about it, idolatry... Anything that 
is more important to you than God, anything that takes more of your thought life and your time than God, that's committing spiritual sexual immorality, spiritual adultery. That's what it is. Because we're supposed to be devoted to Christ. But when we're devoted to something else, He looks at that as spiritual adultery. Like we're having a spiritual affair behind His back. And God is a jealous God, we learn in the Old Testament. And He still is today. And He wants us. He paid. Jesus became a man and purchased us. He gave His life for us. And He wants all of us, as we were singing this morning, He wants us as a living sacrifice for Him. But when we give ourselves to other things, he, He's not happy. He's not pleased. Now, this verse is referring to um, when Israel began to worship the Moabite idols. Now, Moab was the son of Lot and his daughter by incest. And this group, this race of people started the Moabites. And if you study history, the Moabites, they were a pagan nation. They were pagan people. And Israel was to have nothing to do with them. And they were known for having the most beautiful, uh, seductive women around. And what happened, and if we had time to read it, we would. You can read it in the book of Numbers. Many of the men of Israel were attracted and and, uh, involved with these women. They brought them in. They uh, committed sexual immorality with them. And God was not pleased. And we saw the result. 23,000 died in one day. 1,000 more died after that. 24,000 total. And God saw this sin as a cancer in His people. That He knew He he needed to totally eliminate it. And so that's what He did. He called those men of Israel who were not indulging in sexual morality and idolatry to, to kill all of the men who were. And we read about this happening again and again in the Old Testament. And God wants us to know that He takes this serious. Now, we might not make the spiritual parallel. We might not die from committing sexual morality. Though you might, you might not. But physically, many of them died. In the same way, spiritually, this sin will destroy your spiritual life. Whether it's sexual morality or idolatry because you like you, you like something else more than God. You're putting it in His place. It will destroy your spiritual life. That doesn't mean that you're not going to go to heaven. You're going to lose your salvation when I say that. But what it means is you're going to dry up that leanness of soul. And you're not going to be passionate for the Lord anymore. It will rob you of your spiritual joy and fervor and passion. And so that's the spiritual parallel for us today. We need to eliminate idols from our lives or they will eliminate us. Now, the third deadly sin that we see here for confident Christians is testing Christ. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So what does this mean, to test Christ? What is testing Christ? Well, we see uh, what he's referring to back in Numbers 21. Verses 5 and 6. We'll look at that quickly. It says, And the people spoke against God and Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of this Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So, did God really free Israel from their slavery to bring them into the wilderness to die? No. He wanted them to experience the abundant life by going into the promised land. But if you remember, they saw the giants, they didn't believe Him, and they didn't enter. Testing God here, what they did, this is like, here's how I think of this. Think of, think of there were a lion. Uh, I don't know how big lions are. They're huge, but like an 800-pound lion right here. And it, it wasn't tied. It wasn't chained. It wasn't caged. Okay? There's this huge lion. And then maybe, maybe you have children. And maybe your son 
comes up to that line and he starts provoking it and throwing things at it and picking on it and it's na 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 and taunting it. Like, how dumb would that be? Think about that. Provoking and taunting a caged lion. Nobody would do that. It's not smart. But God is the Lion of Judah. And we are to fear Him. He is powerful. And these examples are given to us to show us and remind us of that. He wasn't pleased with Israel. They didn't enter the promised land. They didn't enter that fulfilling, satisfying life. And many of them died because of it. One of the problems with understanding grace rightly, with understanding God's mercy and grace rightly, is that we can forget what it means to fear Him. We can just think, ah, I'm under grace. It doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever and get away with it. But fearing God is not contradictory to being under His grace. He gives us grace, which we don't deserve, to be able to obey Him. And so just like Israel had an equal opportunity, all of them to obey Him, all of us in this room who have believed in Jesus Christ, who are saved, have an equal opportunity to obey Him. And that means that if one of us doesn't, and, we're, and he is not pleased with you, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. You're not taking advantage of the grace that he's given you. And to do that rightly, we need to fear him. So these two things work together. They were testing him like they were provoking a lion that could have killed them at any second. And God sent fiery serpents to do the job this time. I mean, th this is a literal snake bite here that happened to the people. And many of them died. The lie is that if we imagine that we can just sin and it's no big deal and we get away with it, that we're going to be okay. This passage is given to us to remind us that we're not. Listen, I love preaching encouraging messages that make you feel good. This isn't one of them. But I'm not going to not preach it because it's written here. And so we, have, we need this once in a while to remind us to fear the Lord. He is fierce. And if we test Him, we might get destroyed. So don't presume on His mercy and grace. Last one, grumbling. We might think, grumbling? Like murmuring, complaining? Is that really that big of a deal? Yeah, it is. You know, another one in the New Testament that kind of we, is like a respectable sin, but it's mentioned so frequently is envying. There are great consequences for that. Well, grumbling... Same thing. It says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling is just complaining. It's, it's complaining. It's murmuring about things. And uh, we're told not to do that. Now, in number 16, we, we read what happened with this destroyer and the people being destroyed. And I'm just going to kind of go through a few of those verses uh, to show you what happened. I want to show you this interaction between this man named Korah and these two men, Korah and Dothan. Now, listen, these guys, Korah and Dothan, were great-grandchildren of Levi and Reuben of Israel. Okay? And here's what happened. They're following Moses, and they don't like the way he's doing things. They don't really believe that, that God has appointed him. They think he's abusing his power. So, we read, if we can pull, pull up a number 16.8, we read here, Korah says, Korah says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, this is Korah doing this, and said to them, you have gone too far, for in all the congregation, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself among, above the assembly of the Lord? And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, and would you seek to the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So Moses is saying, God put me here in charge. I didn't even want to do it. And, and now what? Do you want to be in charge? He's saying, he's saying, why are you grumbling against the Lord? It's not really grumbling against Moses. And um, Korah then says, is it a small thing 
that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. So what I want you to see here is there were 250 men with Korah and Dathan. There was this faction that, that just kind of grew in Israel of these people, and it grew because of their murmuring and their grumbling and these undertones, and that's bad. God did not like that. As a matter of fact, look at what the Lord did. At this point, Moses stopped defending himself and just gave it to the Lord. He said, deal with this. So the Lord said, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away. So first God's saying, tell everybody, get away. I'm about to do something here. And he says, we can go on. I don't know if we have the rest. He, I'll read it. He says, say to the congregation, get away. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, all, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, into the, into the earth. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incest. Or incense, sorry. <laughs> Boy, I really messed that up. Alright, you get the point. God was very most seriously displeased with this stuff going on. And let me remind us that Paul is referencing this to the New Testament church in Corinth as an example to us as Christians. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, we read, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. We live in the, the end of the ages. Because Jesus is going to come back after this age. There's not another one. And this is for our instruction. And these are some pretty serious consequences. So, just to end this, um, I want to end by reminding us that God says to Christians in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, especially I'm thinking of chapter 10 and chapter 12. We're not going to look at them. But God says, I will judge my people. Hebrews 10.30. In chapter 12, God says, I discipline those whom I love. And he says the discipline isn't always fun. But he disciplines us because he loves us. And he doesn't want to continue in this harmful direction. And he's not going to discipline us by taking our eternal life away. The Bible tells us that very clearly. But he will discipline us during this life, physically. Now, in the next chapter, we're going to see something very eye-opening. And I want to bring it up just to end because it's all a part. This is all one letter, right? This whole book is all one letter. But in the next chapter, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians something that's pretty eye-opening that doesn't get a lot of press from the pulpit. And that is, he's telling them, we'll look at it, he's telling them, because of the way you're living your lives and abusing God's grace, many of you, he tells them, are sick. And some have even died. Now, we have to be very careful with this because we automatically start looking at someone who's sick or someone who died and think, well, they must have been in sin. No, the Bible gives a lot of other reasons that people get sick and die. It doesn't, don't assume that. But we have to teach what it teaches us too, that, that it is a reason. It's a possible reason. As a matter of fact, without me explaining, let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 through 32. This is uh, right after. This is all joined with what we're talking about. Next chapter. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul's telling them this before they take communion. We just took communion this morning. He's telling them this before they eat the Lord's Supper. He says, For if anyone who eats and drinks with, without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many, not a few, 
Think of this church in Corinth. Many of you are weak and ill. And the you there, I have to point out, because some people will say those aren't Christians. No, he's talking to those whom he addresses in verse, the first part of this letter. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart. Those who are saved by Jesus Christ. Those who are Christians. Many of you, he says, are weak and ill, and some have even died. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. When we, as Christians, are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. And so, God might not open up the earth to eat us and swallow us. He might not send fiery snakes to bite us. He might not start a civil war in the church and ask the ones who are living in a pleasing way to kill the other ones. He, that's Old Testament stuff. He may not do that. He probably won't do that. But he wants us to not miss the connection in this whole section from chapters 9 through chapters 11. This connection between our lives as Christians and whether we're walking in the grace God's given us and judgment or consequences or discipline that comes from that. See, the Bible is very clear. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Sin has huge consequences. It doesn't mean if you're sick that you're sinning, but as Paul told them, examine yourself because that is a possibility. I don't like standing up here and saying that. But I have to, because it's a part of this whole chapter and the whole book overall. True Christians can live lives that are displeasing to the Lord. And the Bible tells us in 1 John, references it in James, there is a sin unto death. That means true Christians can spiral down into the consequences of their sin. And God wants to warn us that that not happen to us. So, none of us are immune. And the person who thinks he is, the person who thinks, that's never going to happen to me. I don't need to watch my step. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a warning for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you even for the difficult sections of your word. Lord, they, they keep us in line, and they keep us walking in and drawing from the grace, Lord, that you've given us. We thank you that we are no longer under the law, but we are saved by your grace and your mercy and your work on the cross, Jesus. And thank you that our eternal life is secure and guaranteed. But we pray that we would be able to enter the promised land of this life and experience the abundant life of joy that Jesus Christ has already purchased for us. Help us, Lord. Help us all to enter that rest in the grace that you've given us by surrendering our lives and submitting our lives to you. We want to live lives pleasing to you and we thank you for the warnings in your word that help us and exhort us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.